had intended to extend this series and, and take it on into the end of November, but after my announcement a couple of weeks back, I've had to readjust uh, what I had originally intended to do in the series. So what I'm going to be doing starting this morning over the next five weeks is I've taken uh, several questions that many of you have sent in to me surrounding uh, the book of Revelation, especially a lot of the crazy imagery that you see throughout the book. And so today we're going to start looking at a lot of the weird stuff. So if you're watching from home, how about typing in, we're going to get weird. We're going to start getting weird in this series because we're going to look at a lot of these wild and crazy imagery that we see in the book. So, because a lot of the questions that you guys have sent in are surrounding a lot of this imagery. What is it? What does it mean? When does it happen? And all of that good stuff. And so today, I'm going to do my best to answer the who, what, and when of one of the most iconic or iconic images throughout the book of Revelation. And that being uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And folks, I, I was really excited about this. This is one of the visuals that I can't show you. But uh, growing up, I actually had a blacklight poster. Anybody remember blacklight posters? Ooh. Yeah, I had a blacklight poster of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And if you were like me, if you were a teenager in the 80s, you, your room was probably filled with posters, every square inch of your favorite rock band, and then some of these wild images that you were going to see throughout the book of Revelation. So I actually found on Google the exact poster that I had of these four horsemen of the apocalypse, but I can't show it. So you just have to imagine the black light poster for this morning. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to do my best to answer to shed some light on who, what, and when these four horsemen of the apocalypse are, what they represent. And before we get into that, let me also just say a couple of things. Um, in order to explain what these four horsemen are, I'm going to need to also do some theological explaining. So this morning, we're going to need to put our thinking caps on. So if you would, if you're watching from home, and for those of you in here, let's go ahead and take out your thinking cap. Put it on. You guys are not doing it. You're going to miss what I'm saying. So everybody put their thinking cap on. So again, this is going to be highly theological this morning because we need to... I need to address what we're going to see in this passage here today because it's also not only, not only going to help us to understand who these four horsemen are, but also where we're going to go over the next five weeks. So keep that in mind. And also don't forget that what we read in Revelation, the, the, these are visions given to the Apostle John while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. These visions are given to John by Jesus. And then Jesus instructs John to write them down, to send them to the church, not only for the church back then, but also for the church throughout the entire church age. So with that in mind, if you are watching from home, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is what we're going to look at here today. Here's what we read. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures, these four living creatures are angels, Say with a loud voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. 
When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get into your word here this morning and we start getting into all this wild imagery that we see throughout the book of Revelation, I pray that you would open our minds to your truth, that you more importantly open our hearts. There's a lot in this, even though it seems wild and it seems weird, there's still a lot that we can learn from this. And a lot of what we just read, even though we may not realize it right now, a lot of what we just read impacts us on a daily basis. And so, Father, as I pray, as we look at some hard things, some difficult things, the book of Revelation addresses a lot of hardship. But, Father, I pray that you would keep us reminded and reminded of the truth, as the title of this series is, and what the whole book of Revelation is about. It's about how you win. It's about how you overcome and you conquer. And you bring your kingdom to its complete fruition yes. uh, throughout this earth. And I just pray that you would help us, no matter what we face in this life, what we may be going through, in you, we are more than conquerors yeah. because you have overcome the world. So help us to keep that in mind as we begin to look at this passage here this morning. And we pray and we ask these things in the name of the beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, as I have mentioned throughout this series, the book of Revelation is hands down the most controversial book in the entire Bible. And unfortunately, because of this, Christians have throughout history and even present to this day have fought and, and unfortunately even divided over just how to interpret the book of Revelation. And perhaps the single uh, greatest controversy that, that contributes to this more than anything else it is the structure of the book, right? What is all this imagery, all these wild images and pictures that we are seeing? You know, what are they? What, what did they mean? And not only that, when do they actually happen? Now, as I mentioned during the series introduction several weeks back, that a good number of Christians, especially in the evangelical church here in America, they look at the book of Revelation and they read it and they interpret it that it's describing a very short period of time in the future that takes place just before the second coming of Jesus. And this is typically referred to, if you remember the introduction, it's referred to as the futurist or the futuristic view. And they will argue, those who hold this view, that what we just read here in chapter 6 and going all the way up into like Revelation 19, that there are a description of events and happenings that will take place in a future period of approximately seven years in length, referred to as the tribulation or the great tribulation. And not all who hold to the futuristic view believe this, but a good number of people do, especially in here in the evangelical world and the church. 
is that they believe that just before this tribulation, this seven-year period of time, that Jesus will secretly return to the earth and that he will take the church up, 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 in a way, as I said, or as I said a couple of weeks ago, beam me up, Jesus, and that the church will be raptured or removed from this period, this seven-year period of time. So they won't have to go through that time. So again, that's kind of what a lot of people in our culture, how they view and how they interpret the book of Revelation. And when I first became a Christian, as I mentioned a few weeks back as well, this is the view that I held as well. Once I first became a Christian, up until a few years after becoming a Christian, this is what I held. And the reason for that is because, well, I just thought that's what Christians believed. I wasn't brought up in the church. I wasn't brought up a Christian. So that was the first view that I heard of this. And so automatically, instinctively, not instinctively, but, you know, hey, I guess this is what, that's the only view. But as I started to read the Bible more, and as I started to, you know, understand the Bible and come in contact with different views, I began to change my stance in regards to holding the futuristic view. Now, folks, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I do believe what we just read, and I do believe what we're going to see and what we're going to read over the next couple of weeks or the next few weeks and again, what we read in chapter 6 through 19, I do believe that they are describing events and happenings that take place right at the end of history in conjunction with the second coming of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I also believe that they are describing and that John is also describing events and happenings that are taking place in our day right here and right now and what has been trans transpiring all throughout history from the time of Jesus' first coming and then all the way to his second coming. So he's doing all of those things. He's not just, again, describing events that are going to take place just before Jesus came, comes back. He is describing events that are taking place now and that have taken place since Jesus came the first time and since when Jesus returns and everything in between. Is describing the church age, or the history of the church during that time and that period. But let me give you guys an analogy. As most of you guys know, it's football season. And I don't know about you guys, but this year of football is weird. It's weird. And the reason why it's weird is because of COVID. And because of COVID, you guys know that they're not allowing people into the football stadiums. If you've watched a few games like I have, it's hard to get into the game when there's nobody in the stands. As much as I love football, it's like, Man, there's nobody in there. There's nobody watching. And, and you may have noticed this, which I think is equally as weird, is a lot of the networks, in order to try to make it seem somewhat normal, they're piping in pre-recorded crowd noise. That's odd. Last week, I, one of the oddest things I've ever seen, and I thought it was funny, is um, during the Eagles game, what's the quarterback's name, Carson Wentz, for the Eagles? He threw an interception, and then they piped in pre-recorded booing. So he threw an interception, and it was booing. Anyway, it's weird. It's weird watching it in, in such circumstances here. And um, so, but let's say this. Let's imagine, if you will, that things are normal. And you're actually, you know, you're, you're able to attend 
a football game in person. And let's say you're given the privilege of recording the entire game from a lot of different angles and a lot of different perspectives and different vantage points. So let's say, for example, you are given uh, you know, the tickets to sit on the 50-yard line. And so you're, you're, you're I mean, it's like perfect seats. You're like 10 to 15 rows up. You just got this great view. And, and whether it's with your iPhone or with a different type of camera, whatever camera it may be, you record the entire game from the kickoff all the way up to the two-minute warning and to the ultimate conclusion of the game. So you record it from that angle for the entire game right at the 50-yard line. But then let's also say this that you also have cameras set up in both end zones. Right? The north end zone or the south end zone or the east end zone or the west. And, and so let's say, you know, as you're sitting in that section, you're, you're 50 rows up. And so instead of seeing the game from the 50-yard line, you know, where the players move from, from left to right and right to left, when you sit in one of those sections in the end zone section, they're now coming towards you and then they're moving away from you. And if you're like me, and if you've ever been to a game in person, I've sat in the end zone section, and I've sat in the 50-yard line section, and I promise you the 50-yard line section is the best section. Sitting in the end zone section is odd. It's weird. It's a weird way to kind of watch the game. But again, it's the same game, same players, same plays, but you're sitting in different perspectives, or you're seeing it from a different perspective. And then on top of that, let's say and imagine that you are given the opportunity to, you know, ride in the Goodyear blimp. Right? And so you're, you're sitting in the Goodyear blimp and you're recording it and you're seeing the game now from the overhead view. And, and if you're seeing it from that angle, you get to see everything encompassing all at once. And so again, you, you have this, this different perspective. You have another angle from which to watch the game. Now again, the interesting thing is this, is when you're recording and you're sitting and you're watching the game from those different perspectives, it's still the same game. It's still the same players. And, and, and maybe from, you know, where your camera is and, you know, if you're sitting at the 50-yard line or the end zone or, you know, up above, maybe one of your cameras is focusing in on the offense and what the offense is doing. And then maybe another camera that you're watching or that you're recording with is focusing on the defense. And then another camera that you're using is focusing on, you know, a special player. You know, maybe this player is, you know, considered to be one of the Heisman candidates, and so you're focusing on him. And then another camera, you're watching and you're focusing in on the coaches and, and how they manage the game. But again, it's still the same game. It's still the same players. It's still the same plays. But again, you're, you're able to see it and you're focusing on different vantage points and and, and focusing on emphasizing different elements of the same game. And so as you can imagine, if you have all these different vantage points and all these different angles that you're seeing the game, that is going to help you to greatly understand the game better. Because again, you're seeing it from different vantage points and different angles. And folks, let me suggest to you that this is very similar to what is happening in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19. 
what John is doing. And, and, and the technical term for this, the theological technical term for this is, are you ready for it? Recapitulation. That's what. I knew some of you were going to go. If you're at home, you're probably thinking, recapitulation. What? Recapitulation. Don't ask me how to spell it if you want to know how to spell it at home. But um, How about we say it? We're all going to say it. I actually like the way it sounds and how it comes off the toe. So here we go. One, two, three. Recapitulation. Some of you go, what did I just say? What did I just say? What recapitulation means, it means to repeat. It, it means repetitiveness. And so I believe what we're seeing and what we're going to see over the next few weeks, these visions that John is given throughout the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19, that was granted to him, that they are describing the events of this entire age that we are living in from the first century of Jesus or the first coming of Jesus and up to his second coming. And again, the whole expanse of the church age and really all of history. And again, he's showing us in these visions and these wild images different angles and different perspectives really from a lot of the same things. And so as we're going to see, sometimes what John does is, is that he'll, he'll give us, you know, a very panoramic view of, of things that are going on. And we get a fuller sense of what it is that he's describing. And then sometimes he'll focus on one major event and sometimes he'll focus on one particular person or, or one unique trend. But he's ultimately describing the same events simply from a different perspective and a different vantage point. And again, I, I believe John does this multiple times throughout the book of Revelation. Some Bible scholars say that there are seven parallel sections in the book of Revelation. Again, very similar to these like different camera angles, where you have seven different cameras, again, focusing on different perspectives. On what could be called the commonplaces of human history, and that is the conditions, the circumstances, the experiences and the situations and the environments in which people find themselves throughout this period of history between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And as John finishes one section and brings us to the conclusion of the game or, or, or the second coming, he circles back around or he recapitulates what he's just described. And then he repeats, but he may present what he's repeating from a different point and from a different perspective than what he has just described. I know some of you are probably going, huh? But I, I hope that helps to understand, again, recapitulation. There's a lot of repentance of what John is doing. Now, Revelation is largely concerned with three series of seven judgments. Right? There's seal judgments. Right? When I say seal judgments, I don't mean like ooh, ooh, that type of seal. But there's a lot of scrolls, right? That you know, back in ancient times, you know, when you would roll up a scroll, you would put that wax seal. So there's seals. We just saw an example of that. So where you know there's seven seals, and when they're broken open, then there's a, a judgment that God brings upon the earth, and then there's seven trumpets. To where angels blow the trumpets and then different judgments come out. 
And, and then there's bowls. There's a lot of bowls in there. And, and as the bowls are poured out, it's depicted of God pouring out his, his judgment uh, upon the world throughout you know, human history. And, and some of these things, again, you see, these judgments that take place, these events that are connected with them, you know, when you look throughout history, sometimes they're manifested you know, in a limited fashion or in a limited area. And then you see them, it's sometimes it's broader and it's more intense. One of the things that we're going to see over the next few weeks, and we've already seen an example of it, is that when you look at all these different events and happenings that John is describing, you'll see as he starts off from chapter 6 and as he you know, goes towards chapter 19 and the second coming of Jesus, things intensify. Right? We just read that these four horsemen and what they represent, that they affected a fourth of the world. Now, we, we should need to be careful. We shouldn't take that in a literal sense. But at the same time, what you're going to see is that as, as John progresses, then it goes to, towards these happenings affect a third. And then as we start to get closer and closer towards the second coming of Jesus that John describes, you know, when you start getting into Revelation uh, chapter 20 and, and 22 and 21, now, all of these events and happenings, they're more intense. They're happening more frequently. And now, it's taking over and it's infecting or affecting the entire world. So again, that's something for us to keep in mind. So, what are, with that in mind, what, what are these four horsemen? Who are they? What are they? When are they? And what do they represent? So if you are following from home, let's go back and look at that first section, the first horse. And I looked and behold a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, some have posited and interpreted that this first rider is Jesus. And, and the reason for that, hey, there's my poster. He got it to work somewhere. So there you go. You can see the poster that I had, and it disappeared, but I don't see it. But anywho, so some people will say that this first rider, the white horse, is Jesus. And the reason for that is because when you look in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is also depicted as riding a white horse. Just like this rider is riding a white horse. And then both of them are described as having crowns on their head. So there's, there's similarities that are there between this first rider and Jesus. But folks, I don't think it's describing Jesus. And the reason for that is because there's also dissimilarities. Right? When you read about Jesus in Revelation 19, it, you know, yes, they're both riding on a white horse. But this rider right here in, in Revelation 6 is depicted as having a bow. But see, Jesus in Revelation 19 is depicted as having a sword. And that sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth, symbolizing his truth, symbolizing his word. And see, then also, both of these, these, these images, both of these writers, Jesus as well, they're depicted as wearing a crown. But see, here's the difference. This first writer has one crown, but in Revelation 19, Jesus is depicted as wearing many crowns. 
And so what I think is going on here when you, you know, upon further inspection, I think this first horseman is a satanic parody. I think it's an imitation, a satanic imitation of Jesus. And we're going to see more of this next week when we get into Revelation 13 and we start looking at the beast. And how the beast and how Satan constantly tries to imitate or mock Jesus through a lot of similarities. But again, I think when you look at this, that, that again, it, it is actually is a satanic parody. And it's also describing when you see with the bow and the arrow that there are signs of military might and, and tyranny. And folks, even when you look at Jesus, when Jesus, you know, the mouth of the sword comes out of his mouth, even in the book of Armageddon, when Jesus comes back, Jesus is not depicted as like, you know, using bombs and bloodshed for, for victory. No, he overcomes by his word and by his truth. So again, in this satanic parody, I think, again, it's, it's, it's a satanic parody, but it symbolizes every tyranny and oppression that is brought about by war. Second seal, the second horseman, Revelation chapter 3, or Revelation chapter 6, verse 3, we read this. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. It was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Now, I think it's important to know this, is that the first writer introduces war. I believe that's what's meant by the, the first writer, he comes to conquer, and he's conquering. And then the remainder of these three, they, they, of course, when they delineate, delineate the consequences of war. Right? Notice the second one. It takes away peace from the earth and it enables people to kill one another. Third seal would be this. Third horseman. <clears throat> when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold the black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what sounded to be like a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, what we just read in one little portion of this has confused a lot of people. Because what, what in the world does John mean when he says, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley or denarius and do not harm the oil or the wine. Here's what he's saying here. Because in the ancient world, if you were a working person, working man or working woman, the average day pay for a worker for the average person was one denarius. And so also in the ancient world, you could get a quart of wheat for an eighth of a denarius. So the, the point obviously is that if you have to give a full denarius for just one quart of wheat, then that means that there's a scarcity of food. Right? The, the, the price is exorbitant. But he also says, do not harm the oil and the wine. What does he mean by that? Well, I think God's mercy is, is here. And, and yes, there's also scarcity, but there's also abundance. And so I think what he's describing here could be called the economic imbalance of resources that we've seen all throughout history. Right, so where some people have a lot and some people have very little. 
So I think that's what he's describing here. And then the last verse is called death. And Hades follows him. And he's given the means to inflict death. And so again, all these, you see a succession here of these horses. So, so obviously, if, if there's a horseman that, that brings war, and, and there's a horseman that, that brings you know, famine and pestilence, well, death is going to follow. So they're kind of like a quartet, if you will. That these four horsemen, how they, they move and interact together. And again, they're describing events that take place throughout history. The first coming up until the second coming. And just to give you guys an idea of this, of these four things, I just, I'm going to read you guys some statistics here. And this is, just, this is just from the 20th century. So fairly recent. Just think about war. Right? Hitler and Nazi, the Nazi Germans, they killed, what, six million Jews. And then Mao in China slaughtered tens of millions of political enemies. Pol Pot, after the Vietnam War, had some 10,000 citizens in Cambodia. He slaughtered more than two million of his own people. One in five. And then Joseph Stalin killed more than 30 million of his own people. And again, folks, this is all in the 20th century. World War I, over 41 million died from a variety of countries. World War II, over 60 million died. And it's been, you know, said that between 1870 and 2001, 130-year period, that globally, in regards to war, there were 3,168 conflicts in just a 130-year period. And then when it comes to pestilence and famine, even worse, right? You know, think about this, right? Black day, death, the plague, remember that? Killed some 75 to 200 million people as far as an estimate, how many people they killed. And then you had the Spanish flu, which you know experts say it may have been anywhere between what, 50 to 100 million people. And then you have AIDS, which has been estimated that about 30 million people have died. And now, hey, we're living in this pandemic, and just in America alone, 200,000. Here's how John Stott summarizes this passage. John is teaching us that in the church age, as the gospel goes forth, there will be no permanence and stability on the earth. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be wars, famines, and earthquakes. The world will not and cannot be at complete peace until Jesus returns to judge and to usher in everlasting peace. For this reason, we should never expect permanence, complete abundance, and security in the power structures of this world. This is because the four horsemen of the apocalypse have been unleashed, and they are riding among us even today. 
So again, what are these four horsemen? They represent different events, different happenings, different circumstances that take place here on planet Earth from Jesus' first coming all the way to his second coming. And as we're going to see, they have a tendency to increase with intensity as you get closer and closer towards the second coming of Jesus. I know some of you are thinking, Todd, good Lord, this is so heavy. I came here just to get a little bit of encouragement and, you know, try to learn how to get along better with my boss tomorrow. Ah. Well, I could do this because at least three or four of you wanted to know what these four horsemen represented, so I could blame you guys for it being, for those of you who asked the question, but I'm not. But in all seriousness, folks, you can look at this and it can be heavy. But at the same time, when I look at this, because this is a description of history, that means that as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when we see these things happening because we're already told that they will happen. They will come. But at the same time, the good news is this. If you had, if you had read in chapter 5 just before you get into chapter 6, John is ushered into heaven. And John begins to weep. Because nobody can open these the seals, these, these scrolls. And again, they represent history. But then John is told to weep no more. Why? Because the lion and the lamb has triumphed. And he has the ability to break open and to open these seals. In other words, what that is symbolizing is that Jesus, we may not see it always, but it's symbolizing that Jesus is in control of history. And history is ultimately going someplace. As I said a few moments ago at the beginning, again, when some of these images are intense, they're not always happy, but the good news is, is by the time you get to the end of the book of Revelation, God wins. God Wins. The Lamb overcomes. And, and we oftentimes forget this, folks. We're in a war. We are in the middle of a spiritual, cosmic war. And unfortunately, sometimes, you know, we get affected by this. This spiritual battle. Again, that's, that's one of the main, you know, themes of the book of Revelation. Is spiritual warfare, spiritual battle, God versus the devil, good versus evil, and how the gospel and how the church goes forth in the midst of it, and what we face and what we endure between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. But folks, praise God, God wins. And because of Jesus and because of our faith and our trust in him, that means you win too. And we all win. And so as we look at some of these, these more difficult passages of the book of Revelation, I just want to encourage you. Oh, man, that's intense. It can be, you know, disheartening, but we win. We win. He wins. Jesus is taking history someplace. And folks, we know how it ends. God's kingdom comes to earth. Life triumphs over death. 
Good triumphs over evil. Justice triumphs over injustice. And love conquers hate. But folks, in the meantime, we face a lot of these difficulties and these events that take place. But we overcome them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just pray that as we close here this morning, as we look at this fascinating book, Again, it's very relevant. It's very relevant to our world and our day and age and a lot of things that we see going on and facing in the world. And Father, I know that we can look at the state of our world right now and it can be very frightening. But Lord, as we've just read, it shouldn't surprise us because this has been going on this battle, this spiritual battle, this war that we're in. There is a kingdom of darkness that battles against a kingdom of light. And we win, but there's still a battle that takes place. And Father, I pray that as we look at these things that we face in the world, there's war, there's death, there's hunger, there's poverty, I pray that as your people, as your kingdom people, that you will help us, empower us to do what it is that we can, be empowered by you, to bring that kingdom that is coming one day to complete fruition in the future, that you would help us as you've told us to pray for your will to be done and your kingdom to come now. Help us to where we see death, to be hands and feet and mouths of life, to speak into that, and where people are hungry, that you would help us to feed them. And when there's sickness, that you would help us to pray for healing. Even though we know that that stuff is still going to happen in between your two comings, we also know how it ends. And you tell us to be your hands and your feet. And help us in the midst of the difficulties of this life to know, yep, it's going to happen. But we know how it ends. Midst of those difficulties and hardships, we can walk with, with, with great confidence because you're there. You promise to be with us through all things. And you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Help us to just get a good vision of who you are. And again, you're taking history. We're heading someplace. This is not how the story ends. And Father, whatever it is that we're facing here this morning, we need peace. Father, I pray that you would just bring peace. Father, if we need encouragement, Holy Spirit, I just pray right now, not only for those here, but for those who are also watching at home, bring your encouragement. We need joy. Scripture says that it's your joy that is our strength. Just pray right now that you would just pour out your joy. Father, I pray for those who need a touch of your love, Holy Spirit, right now, wherever it is that we are, wherever it is that we're watching, we're here at home. Just pray right now that you would pour out your love. And fill us up. Fill us up with your love. Father, I pray for those who need a touch in their body, those who are sick. We pray for healing. Again, for those whose hearts may be hurting, we just pray for comfort. Pray for healing there, emotional healing. 
be it Holy Spirit, whatever it is that your people need, we just pray right now. We just pray and just ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you just come and fill us up. And we pray that as we go out into our places, whether we be at work or school this upcoming week, Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would empower us. Help us to go about and be your people. Help us to be people of your kingdom. And whatever it is that we face, help us to realize that because of you, you're more than conquerors. And we can face this world as difficult as it can be. The Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we pray and we ask these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, guys, have a great Sunday. We'll see you back next Sunday. And if you guys want to go ahead and get a jump, uh, next Sunday we're going to look at Revelation 13. Revelation 13.